Today we have the privilege of hearing from Bruce Ewing, Ross's childhood pastor. Bruce uh, got his degree from Dallas Theological Seminary in 1836. <laughs> oh, was that not? That was a little, I was off a little bit. <laughs> but he's still kicking. We love having Bruce here, and I think you'll really enjoy his time. Thank you, Bruce. Born. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I pray that God would give you grace. <laughs> Gee, many Christmas. Dr. Walberg came and spoke at our church one time up in Tulsa. At that time, he was about 88 years old, and uh, people came up, hi, Marilyn. Hello. Hello. <laughs> and uh, he said, people keep on coming up to me and asking me, well, how are you doing? How are you feeling? He said, well, most of what I have doesn't work, but what does work hurts when it works. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not speaking on Nahum today. Was I supposed to speak on Nahum? Who screwed that one up? I wish I were. Whoever in the world assigned Amos to me, this is horrible. This is a, this, I studied more. I told uh, Eric a while ago, this is the hardest I've ever studied for a, for a message in my life, and I don't know how it's going to end up, but hold in there with me, okay? I got something here for you. I wish the kids were still here. <clears throat> if you don't remember my big idea today, I would just like for you to open these boxes and passed one out, not, not the box, but uh, I definitely need that. Thank you me. need that. These are famous Amos cookies. Um, there you go. Don't eat them all. Here you go, guys. You want to pass those out? Just make sure everybody has one. Oh, that, you play with the cowboys, don't you? <laughs> Take one and pass it around, okay? I did have a Bible. Where'd it go? Back here. No, I tell you, studying the book of Amos is like drinking out of a fire hose. Uh, just so much there and there's so many different directions you can go and I didn't go back and listen to what the rest of the guys said because uh, I didn't want to show them up <laughs> before I really get started into the passage itself can we pray again Father the more we come to know of who you are and the word that you've given us, the more we're overwhelmed. And we confess to you, the Father, this morning that um, you would give us insight. I've prepared a bunch of stuff, but I would invite Holy Spirit to interrupt at any time and share whatever needs to be shared to custom fit it for each one of us here. And Father, I'm going to pray right now that each one of us would just lift our hearts before you and say, if there's one thing that I'm going to walk out of here with, we depend on you to teach us. 
So, Father, we look forward to meeting you. And thank you for the cookies. In Christ's name. When you look at the prophetic books, and I'm going to try to give a bird's eye view here of where we're going with this. Prophecy has become an increasing area of interest with so many people, especially since Congresswoman Cortez said that we only have 12 more years. I don't know what that's going to look like, but the trend is focusing on the future because people are fed up with the present. And it's almost like we want a fire escape, and so... We ask ourselves a question, when will Christ return? Uh, and, and why do we put that in light of the world's conditions? And that's what your, both the major and minor prophets are really addressing. And I want to put that in a particular perspective. As you've already been told, I'm sure Amos is one of the 12 minor prophets. There's nothing minor about them outside the fact they were called that because they were shorter books. They're part of that team of seven prophecies that we look at continually, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, etc. But really, when you look at it, we need to see all of Scripture as prophetic. All of the New Testament is prophetic. These gentlemen were handpicked by God through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to express God's thoughts about present conditions as far as the future is concerned. Amos was one of those guys, and what a guy he was. When we look at prophecy, it might surprise some of us to know that only 1% of the prophetic passages are events yet to come. 2% of the prophecies, only 2% deal with the coming Messiah. 5% deal with the new covenant of the New Testament. But 90% deals basically with the ethical nature of the nation of Israel. It addresses lifestyle. Amos is really strong not only on the holiness of God and how Israel incorporates that into their lifestyle, but also the consequences of disobedience. We'll find out a little bit later this morning that God has set a standard that he expects his people to live up to and the people of Israel found it very difficult, partially because they lived in a very, at this particular time, was in a very affluent environment. It was very narcissistic. It was a hedonism at its best. The family structure completely destroyed. Immorality was at an all-time high. The value of life was a zero with all the edges rubbed off. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, which serves as a theme, I think, for all of the Old Testament, is basically this. God blesses obedience, but he judges disobedience. I've tried to teach that to my children. I've tried to live it myself. And I often get confused when I do things right and things don't turn out the way I think they should have or would have planned or the script I have written. I'm sure many of us here have experienced that before. 
And this, in a sense, is where the nation of Israel was. There were a few people who chose to hang on to that absolutely truth, and Amos was one of them. But what we often don't see, because we live in the present and we feel at times God has failed us, we forget that there's something more. That he is going to honor present obedience. Even if it doesn't, we see the immediate effects. This is exactly what the first thing that Jesus tried to teach his disciples in Luke chapter 6. He taught them an eternal perspective because if we're just looking at the present, we're in trouble. We serve an eternal God. And we need to think in him in terms of eternity. Throughout all of the prophecies, especially of the big 17, there's four things that seem to stand out. One is a concept of worship. The centrality of God in the lifestyle and the righteousness that comes from that. Leviticus chapter 1 verse 19, a passage that I don't know if we really understand what it means. He says, be holy just as I am holy. And we can say, well, that's the Old Testament. Uh, yeah, but it's also repeated in 1 Peter. That's consistent. God wants to build a concept of holiness in the lives of his people. The second thing is idolatry. Every one of them deal with this issue of idolatry, of giving other things first place in our lives rather than the person of Christ, the holiness of God. As a matter of fact, uh, Amos preached in the temple called Bethel. That was originally one of the temples that God had created for himself with all of the, all the surroundings of the communion cups, all of the intricacies of the temple. And they had turned it into a shrine. And it became a place of idolatry. And we'll talk about that in just a little bit. Then he talked about adultery, immorality, losing the value of life, the brutality of not only the surrounding countries, there were seven, six of them surrounding uh, Israel, but those countries began to have a tremendous influence in the life of Israel, and you couldn't tell the difference between one or the other. There's a practical application there, isn't it? What is it that people see about my life that I have an influence upon them rather than me bowing down and being influenced by them? And that's the culture we live in. And I really pray for our high school and junior high kids today. I'm glad I'm not living in that time. I've got four grandchildren. I pray for them almost consistently. Kind of like breathing because I would not want to grow up in the culture that they're growing up in. The third thing that we're going to talk, our fourth thing we're going to talk about is not just worship, idolatry uh, and adultery, but the injustice. Taking advantage of other people, especially those who maybe did not grow up in the same affluence we did. It is so easy for me to walk some, by someone with need, that's in need and I have a calloused attitude where I don't even feel their pain. And one of the things that's being addressed in this book of Amos and all of the prophets is we need to pay special attention for those who are disenfranchised. 
Now, more liberal churches will just look at, 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 the, at especially the minor prophets and say, well, the whole book is built around social injustice. Yes, that's a part of it. But the reason for the social injustice, listen carefully, the reason for the adulterous relationships and the decline of morality, the idolatry and losing a concept of worship is because we've taken our eyes off the first love. They are all consequences of not allowing God to be preeminent in our lives. And that's what part of this book is about. I said earlier that 90% of the book deals with ethical, political, moral, lifestyle choices of that day. And I don't know exactly how to explain this. You just have to bear with me and help me. But all of the prophecies, like I said, 90% of the content is written to deal with what people were, their lifestyle at the present time. But at the same time, we are to learn from the lessons of that present time and say, how does that apply to us today? I talked to a friend of mine who went to the same seminary that Ross and I went to and I said, Phil, help me understand more fully what this is. He says, it's like, it's like being in a canyon and you, and you speak the word and then there's an echo that goes into future generations in this case. From a prophetic perspective, and we will see very clearly today how Amos has lifted out things that literally destroyed a nation and consumed lives that you and I are wrestling with in our culture today. It coincides perfectly. And the warnings that are in the book of Amos are the very warnings that we need to take heed of today. The problem in the Old Testament was do the best you can. Keep the laws, keep the rules. And if we don't take care of the consequences through the sacrifice of a herd of livestock or a flock of sheep, you're in trouble. I've been reading through the Old Testament. I'm absolutely amazed at the constant moment-by-moment -moment sacrifices that were offered on a daily basis because People are sinful. And without those sacrifices, they're dead in the water. I grew up on an Angus ranch. Within, by the end of my freshman year in high school, my dad would have gone broke because we would have had every one of those cattle slaughtered. <laughs> and you think about just, just what those worship services must have been like. And in spite of all of that, the blood, the guts, you saw the glory of God. That when those sacrifices took place and his people were then forgiven for a relationship with him, it was called a sweet aroma to God. And I don't know if you've been around burning flesh or not. Rotting cattle, but it's sick. It is rotten. It's ugly. But God takes the very ugliest and by his grace turns it into a sweet aroma. That's why I think it's what Paul said in uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. Be imitators of God as beloved children. Love and walk as he walked. Let your lives be a sacrifice unto God, which is a fragrant aroma, 
And that's a real challenge, I think, behind all of the uh, prophecies that we read about. But this whole thing of taking what he was addressing at that particular time and being able to see not only is there judgment or there's blessings in that particular time of how they respond to the character of God, but to transfer that today and say, you and I are wrestling with the same thing. In 1920, there was a gentleman who was born by the name of R.K. Harrison. He was a great biblical historian, and I think he captured it so well, and I'd like to read a quote from him. He said, while the prophets often dealt with the contemporary political, social, and religious issues of their utterance, they were actually conscious of the fact that the future is inherent in the past. Can I read that again? Because I think it just summarizes it so well how the prophetic books fits into our everyday life. It makes prophecy realistic. It makes prophecy relevant. While the prophets often dealt with the contemporary political, social, and religious issues of their utterance, they were acutely conscious of the fact that the future is inherent in the past. I'm a product of my father. Greatest man next to God. When it talks about being imitators of God, I think about imitating my father. I remember on one occasion, one of the profs from the seminary came out to my dad's ranch in western Oklahoma. And my dad had a trailer house out by the lake and... and um, that says, why don't you come out and just spend a weekend with your wife? And so Bob and Clara went out and spent the weekend with them. They had not met my father up to that point. They, the next week he came back to the seminary and he, started, he looked at me and just started laughing. I said, what's the deal, Bob? Paid me the greatest compliment of my life. He said, you're just like your dad. The greatest compliment we can be paid is when come up, someone comes up and says you the first thing I think of when I see you when I see your marriage when I see your family the first thing I think of is God Amen. the people of Israel lost their concept of who God is A.W. Tozer gave a quote and I every time I talk to my grandson up in Detroit I'll ask him this question what's the most important thing about a man so what comes to his mind when he thinks about God? What's the most important thing about your life? In the workplace, in the community, in high school, what is the most important thing about you? It's not the grade you make, the touchdown you're in, the promotion you got, but what comes to a person's mind when they see you and the first thing that comes to mind is to think about God and what Israel had done. They had so distorted the picture of God through their disobedience. God was ready to nail him to the wall and he did. If you would, I'd like for you to turn to the book of Hebrews right quick and we're going to run out of time. That's okay. But we got cookies. In Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, God, after he had long ago spoken to the fathers and the prophets, and he's referring this time right here, 
in many portions, in many ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us through his son, through whom he also made the world. In verse, chapter 2, verse 1 and 2, for this reason we must pay closer attention that what we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through the angels proved unalterable and every transgression and disobedience received just recompense, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? That's pretty powerful, especially in the context of the book of Amos. The result of that is if you go to, on a little bit further to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, it says, Therefore, forgetting what lies behind reaching forward that which lies ahead, laying aside every encumbrance and sin which so easily entangles us. But let us run the race that is set before us with endurance. <clears throat> Amos. The person God uses, verse 1 and 2, the words of Amos, who was among the sheep leader, sheep herders of, uh, is it Tekoa? It sounds like a little town that we drive through where I always get a ticket for going over 45, which he envisioned in visions concerning Israel, the days of Uzziah the king, etc., etc. There's hope for all of us. And it's all built around the fact that God chose Amos. Amos was a sheep herder. He was little, low, little old podunk town just off the main course from Jerusalem toward Bethlehem. Tremendous insignificance. It was a desert area in which he lived. He raised sheep. He was evidently a good sheep herder. He raised a few cattle and picked figs that were not from regular fig trees. They were some sort of a fig tree that they had to dry up to a certain point before the, the little fig would become edible. That was who Amos was. He was not a prophet. He wasn't the son of a prophet. It was a person just like you. He taps you on the shoulder and he says, I need you right now. I would have never chosen Amos. You would have never chosen Amos to be entrusted with such truth. But of course, I would have never chosen Moses. He couldn't get a complete sentence out of his mouth. That's why God chose Amos to travel with him so he'd be a spokesman. I would have never chosen Jeremiah. Jeremiah was so young, he says, I don't have a clue what to say, but God used him. I would have never chosen any one of the disciples. Those were a bunch of <laughs> every walk of life, but he chose them. That's right. I certainly wouldn't have chosen Paul. Enemy of God. Murderer. But God chose him. You see, we're not all Billy Grahams. But Billy Graham has a very defined audience. And you and I, I don't know how many there are here, maybe 150, 100. That tells me that there's 100 to 150 people that are stepping into a culture that needs desperately to get a picture of who God is. Amen. And the thing that short circuits that and culminates that is our own sin. And that's what God was concerned about, the nation. He said, God brought me out of Egypt. Why? To have an influence because there were seven countries surrounding Israel at that time that were defined in chapters 2 through 3 
and they were despicable. They were in Damascus. It says in verse 3 of chapter 1, because they thrashed Gilead with implements of sharp iron. He says, I'm judging Damascus, not because of just one thing they did, two things they did, three things they did. I'm, I'm, I'm judging Damascus for the multitudes of things they did by taking a huge 22-foot combine with spikes on the end and just literally ripped people apart. Civilization. Total disregard for human life. Let's go down to verse 13. Then the Lord says, For three transgressions, the sons of Ammon, for the, and four, I will... Revoke its punishment because they ripped open the pregnant woman out of Gilead in order to enlarge their borders. I had a chance to go to Israel and we were at the, 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 the shrine of Pam where they would literally take little babies and throw them against the rocks. They would take them up to the top where the waterfall was and throw them off into the water. Does that sound at all relevant? to our culture today. I listened to a report yesterday and said, what is being promoted in New York and is it Massachusetts has gone on, or Virginia has gone on for years more than what we'll ever imagine. And it turns God's stomach. The neighbors to the north, those surrounding countries, had no law whatsoever. They were free. But who influenced who? If you would, I'd like for you to look at chapter 2, verse 4. And we find here the culprit of where the, really the root of all this takes place. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah and four. And when he uses that term, he says a multitude of transgressions. He's talking about a lifestyle totally void of their attention upon God. Listen to this carefully. Because they rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes. That's the whole basis of the judgment. I was talking to someone the other day. He says, you know what? We've got it all backwards. We go out and we march to put a stop to abortion. He says, what we need to do is begin to teach what God's word says about the sanctity of life. My wife said the other day, she said, I think all the women from every church ought to stand outside abortion clinics and stand as people were walking in and says, I want your baby. People have reasons to do things they do. But from God's perspective, they do not have an excuse to do what they do. And someone has to stand up in love. One of the things that was going on in this country, and I'm going to have to wrap it up. One of the things that was going on in this country was the fact that the morality was out of sight. Not only was this horrible thing happening to little children, but the pornography was rampant. I was speaking at a conference a couple of years ago 
And it took two years for him to finally invite me back. I'm going back next, well, uh, one of the churches uh, up in St. Louis. I, I asked, uh, I made this statement. I said, you need to know the congregation. 70 to 75% of your congregation is presently viewing porn sites on a regular basis. And the men went zip, and the wives went, oh. And then I asked these, all pastors and wives, I said, count off in twos. One, two, one, two, one, two. All the twos sitting here today as pastors visit porn sites on a regular basis. That's the statistics. Major university right here in Dallas, of all the freshmen coming in, 65% of them sign up immediately, go to counseling because of porn addiction. And I was talking to a leader in a major college uh, movement the other day, and he said, Bruce, he said, we've just seen the tip of the tsunami. We have become so calloused when it comes to things that we see on TV, it no longer affects us. And the three most addictive chemicals known to scientists today is number one, cocaine, number two, meth, number three, pornography, because there's something about pornography that once it gets into our brain, it gives us very same chemical reaction that the other two do. And the recovery is difficult. And he says, what the church has done up to this point is it has been punitive in nature, condemning in nature. I have to be careful with a lot of people I work with because not only have they wrestled with this, and these, these are people who could buy Tulsa. And a lot of those have had sons and daughters that have been a part of the abortion process. And one other thing I'm beginning to understand is there's always a reason why a person does such, but they have not been given the alternative. And we, 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 we're punitive in how we deal with them. We, 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 we put them on the shelf. But what we're learning is, is that we need to be not punitive, but restorative. Amen. Passionate. There's so many things I've done in my past I wished I hadn't done. But God demonstrated his love for me. I'm going to wrap it up. You said I could go to 11.30, whenever. I'm, I'm going to skip a whole bunch. My wife told me I was going to do this, and that's okay. She's used to it. Um... The one, I, the one thing I want to talk about is God's grace through all of this. All of the prophets are saturated. We see the condemnation. We see the punishment. Every one of these passages are just saturated with God's grace. Throughout the passage, you see, God reminds them that they are his children regardless of the sin. You and I have done things that would automatically disqualify us, but we are God's children by the virtue of the fact we came in that relationship with them. And when we believe, we became a child of God. 37 times he mentions in this book that you are my people, and it's breaking my heart that you're destroying yourselves. 
The second thing that I see in His grace is that they are continually warned. He said, you've done this and you've suffered the consequences and yet you've not returned. That's in chapter 4, verse 8. Chapter 4, verse 9. Yet you have not returned. You suffered the consequences in verse 10. Yet you have not returned. In verse 11, you've done these things, daily consequences, but you just don't learn your lesson. In chapter 5, God begs his people. Right in the middle of all the sin, he says in verse 4, he pleads with his people, will you please just seek me? I know you're caught up in stuff that's overwhelming to you, but will you just seek me? In verse 6, will you just seek the Lord? Verses 15 and 16 of chapter 5, seek good and not evil. The third way in which God shows his grace is in chapter 7, 1 through 9. Verse 2, and it came about when he had finished eating the vegetation of the land, and I said, God, please pardon. How can, I stand, how can Jacob stand for he is small? And the Lord changed his mind. In the midst of sin, God changed his mind because he wanted to give every person a chance to respond. There was another plague that came, and thus the Lord showed me. And behold, the Lord was calling uh, to confront uh, with them by fire. And it consumed a great and deep and, and began to consume a, fire, um, a, a farmland. Then I said, God, please stop. How can Jacob stand for he is small? And the Lord changed his mind. You see God's grace and his patience in the midst of sin. Strike one. Strike two. And then it goes back to one of the original points, and that's the whole point of Scripture. Then he showed me in verse 7, And behold, the Lord was standing by a vertical wall with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, What do you see, Amos? And I said, A plumb line. And the Lord said, I'm about to put the plumb line in the midst of my people of Israel. I will spare them no longer. Strike three, and you're out. God's patience, his grace, and the fact that he continually called them his kids. God's grace and the fact that he continually warned them. He begs them to come back. He shows his grace and his patience. But God would only do that for so long. As a matter of fact, if we look at chapter 8, verses 13 through 11 through 13, he says, I'm going to send a famine. And this famine isn't going to be food and water. But it's going to be a famine of people seeking truth. And when they deny me so long, when they reject me for so long, they won't even be able to find the truth. And they will search for it as if their life depended upon it. That's how desperate it can get. And how, that's how desperate we can get in our own lives when we choose to reject his absolute truth concerning himself. Since we're in the prophecies, I'll just wrap it up with this one. I'd like for you to turn back to Ezekiel chapter 36. 
If this were written today, we'd all be dead apart from God's grace. But what he was doing was building kind of this eternal perspective into the lives of his people. And he says, if you just turn, if, 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 by this time they were deaf and they were blind to truth. But true to his promise, and we find that in the last paragraph of Amos chapter 9. We see the reality of Ezekiel chapter 36. Verse 26, or 25. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. This is all that's defined in the last paragraph of chapter 9 of Amos. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit within you. And will remove from you that heart of flesh and give you a heart of flesh, which is God's word personified in the life through Jesus Christ. I will put my spirit within you. You don't need to keep the law any longer. For I, through the indwelling Holy Spirit, will cause you to walk in my ways and keep my commandments. No more bloody sacrifices. It all happened on the cross. And I know there's many of us here today said, gosh, I wished I hadn't done that. I look into my own life and I see areas of disobedience. Sometimes I think that God would disown me. But he's given us hope. Amen. And if you're the here this morning and you've never before received that new heart, to receive that once and all forgiveness of sin, no longer from the flesh of animals, but the flesh of Jesus Christ himself when he said it's finished. If you've never before placed your trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, I'm going to invite you to pray silently with me right now. Not only to receive him for that forgiveness, but also to thank him for the forgiveness that you have. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for just this time together. We pray that you would, through the power of your spirit, allow us to step into eternity with you. That we receive your forgiveness. We thank you for Jesus. We ask him to come into our lives and transform us and cause us to keep his statutes. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.